This is episode 36 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. Last March, I found out that poet, writer, memoirist Sarah Manguso was coming to New York City to give a reading, and we made a date to record a conversation for Commonplace. Then there was a huge snowstorm, and Sarah's flight was canceled. A few days later, she flew into New York City, but by then I'd come down with a terrible cold and couldn't get up. I had corresponded with Sarah for years and wanted to talk with her about her two newest books, 300 Arguments and Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. I also wanted to continue and update a conversation we'd had in 2009. Sarah and I had written back and forth to one another about the gulf that can exist between women, especially women writers, who are and are not mothers. We'd published this conversation online and gotten interesting responses to it. At the time of that conversation, my sons were 12, 10, and 2, and Sarah seemed pretty sure she was not going to have children. A few years later, Sarah did become a mother, and I wanted to talk to her about how she looked back on our conversation now that she had become a mother herself. Meanwhile, at this time, I was reading a manuscript in progress by Sheila Hetty, a book called Motherhood, about Sheila's thinking through of the question of whether or not to have children, about her own mother, about motherhood as an institution, about being a woman. Years earlier, Sheila had written to Sarah and to me in appreciation of that online conversation about motherhood, and Sheila and I had started a correspondence about womanhood, motherhood, life, writing, Jewishness, and many other things. At that time, Sheila was the interviews editor at The Believer and worked with me on an interview I did with Wayne Kostenbaum and Matthew Rohr. So in March, I had this terrible cold, and then I got better. I was reading Sarah's books and Sheila's manuscript. I was working on my lectures and on my manuscript of poems and entering a new stage of motherhood in which I was preparing for my oldest son to go to college. It felt like a literary storm of motherhood concerns, and I desperately wanted to talk to Sheila and, and Sarah about all these things. I decided to break my face-to-face rule for this podcast in order to have a three-way conversation with Sarah in Los Angeles, Sheila in Toronto, and me in New York City. Sheila Hetty is the author of seven books, including, most recently, her novel, How Should a Person Be? She is co-editor of the best-selling book, Women in Clothes. Her book, Motherhood, will be published in spring of 2018. Sarah Manguso is also the author of seven books, most recently, 300 Arguments and Ongoingness. She has written essays for Harper's, The New York Times, and other places, and has taught at Columbia, The New School, Scripps College, and Cal Arts. Both of these strong, ambitious, wonderful women have communicated to me at various points in my life that they were interested in hearing from me in my writing, in person, about my experiences, whether these experiences overlapped with theirs or not. And this interest, sometimes slightly clinical, but always kind, has been sustaining to me. There should be a word or a phrase. Literary friendship doesn't quite describe it, for the kind of friendship that begins in writing, through writing, out of writing, and continues mostly, but not only, in writing. These kinds of relationships are, in my experience, unlike other kinds of friendships, sometimes more urgent, sometimes less urgent than relationships with regular friends or family. 
These literary relationships are differently but deeply essential. My friendships with Sarah and Sheila and my exposure to their writing have made my writing better and have helped me think or rethink the most fundamental parts of my life. There's something about reading them and talking with them that helps me see myself with more clarity and understanding. I'll be honest, sometimes that's a painful process. But it feels necessary to me, essential as a writer and as a human being. There's a kind of frankness that Sarah and Sheila bring to the table that I deeply appreciate and that slightly frightens me. It's present in their work and in their speech. I feel they want to know me. And in their presence, I feel a boundless curiosity to know them, myself, and others. In their presence, I also feel a new kind of courage to examine the things in my life that are hard to look at. This conversation is not only about motherhood. It's about womanhood, time, shame, friendship, writing, attachment, separation, ambivalence, whiteness, and so much more. My oldest son, by the way, is not in college right now. He's taking a gap year and is in Charlottesville, Virginia, working with the Democratic Party on the upcoming Virginia elections. I'm so proud of him and excited for him. And the feeling of being separated from him is one of the many intolerable emotions we discuss in this conversation. I'm so grateful to Sheila and Sarah for their interest in intolerable emotions in their own mine and others lives. I'm grateful for this podcast for creating a space that allows me to talk about these things with the most amazing writers and artists. I'm grateful to you listener for your interest for your emails and tweets and support and encouragement. Keep it coming. Also, many thanks to Grey Wolf, Alice James Books and Farrar Strauss and Giroux for donating books to our next raffle. Patrons will be entered to win Ongoingness, 300 Arguments, and The Captain Lands in Paradise, all by Sarah Manguso. And The Chairs Are Where the People Go, by Sheila Hetty. I'm also giving away copies of three of my books that we discuss in this episode, Home Birth, Mothers, and Museum of Accidents. Patrons will get access to exclusive audio of Sarah reading from Ongoingness and from 300 Arguments, and of Sheila giving us a sneak preview reading from her forthcoming book, Motherhood. To become a patron of Commonplace, visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or commonpodcast.com. On commonpodcast.com, you'll also find links to the people and books we mention in each episode, and you can sign up for the Commonplace newsletter that comes out with each new episode. Sarah, Sheila, and I conducted this conversation over Skype. You might at first have trouble distinguishing between our voices. Mine, you might know by now. Sarah's voice is a bit deeper than Sheila's. I hope you enjoy this episode. Be well. And thanks for listening. I don't think I know how you guys know each other, how you met and um, how you became friends. I noticed when I was reading Ongoingness and um, 300 Arguments that, um, Sarah, you thank Sheila at the back of both of those books. Um, and I realized, wow, I don't, I don't even know how you guys know each other. We know each other from Yaddo. Uh, 2006. It, it's very vivid in my memory. 
Um, it was just, it was a very vivid time of my life. I was undergoing this kind of awakening. Uh, I had just met uh, Adam, who I eventually married, but um, it was different from every other, you know, sort of like, I like you in a, in a husbandly way sort of relationship. Um, I, within like four seconds of meeting him, I knew I wanted to be fucking him. And then within three weeks of meeting him, I knew I wanted to be married to him. And within a couple of months, I knew I wanted to have, have children with him. And I had never wanted, you know, as you know, I, from our long previous conversation, I'd never wanted to be married or have children. And like a, a month after all of this happened, I went to Yaddo and I met Sheila and Amanda Stern, who are two extremely important people for me um, as a writer and as a person who loves friends. And um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Maybe Sheila, you, maybe you can imagine, I mean, or maybe you can remember the actual day, but I just have these vivid memories of sitting with you on the deck of the mansion and feeling like, oh my God, I've discovered these incredible friendships. And yeah, I'm trailing off. What were you yeah. working on, Sarah, at the time? Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. It, it, meeting Adam had sort of dislodged this. Um, this 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 ability or need to write prose and within a few days of of meeting him i started writing the two kinds of dk which i finished at yaddo got it and and um sheila what what is sarah uh what how are your memories different from sarah and and um uh what were you working on at that time in yaddo um i was so yeah i was working on i was right at the beginning of working on how should a person be and my marriage had ended probably six months or so before, maybe a little longer before I came. And so it was also a really vivid time for me. And yeah, um, I remember all these different conversations we had together. And it wasn't clear to me, even though Sarah and I were becoming friends and sort of gravitated towards each other and towards Amanda, it wasn't clear that I would still know her 10 years later. I find, and and that she would have become such an important person in my life. That that wasn't clear at the time, even though they were the people that I gravitated towards. Um, but I remember I didn't have a boyfriend at the time and neither did Amanda. And, and we thought Sarah was so strange. And we were just like, well, if Sarah can have, if Sarah can find love, surely we will be able to find love one day. <laughs> yeah. Others, others have said it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, what did you find um, strange about Sarah? Sarah has this kind like this, she, op her eyes are very large and she has this kind of staring way um, and she's just like very, her pace when she talks and when she moves, like it's all very distinct. She's just not like any other person. Um, there's a kind of, she seems like a, a person who spent a lot of time alone, which a lot of writers do, but with Sarah kind of like emanates off her. Um, I don't know why I thought, you know, we're all weird, but, but, but there's just something about Sarah that was like um so singular and like seemed the fact that she could mesh with somebody else in that way just seemed amazing to us 
And um, I have a, such a terrible memory, which I think is part of why I'm a writer. Um, although I know that some of the most amazing writers in the world have the best memories. So I think it works both ways. But I cannot remember how I first met you, Sarah, or you, Sheila. I just don't remember. Oh, I think I can remember. Oh, God, that's really strange. Yeah, I must have been in a really blurry time. And and I was, you know, I remember, Rachel, we gave a reading, oh. you and I, with and- David Lehman at the at um, uh, Macor. I the think West it was Wayne Kostenbaum and not David Lehman. No, it definitely was David because I remember it was for Best American Poetry. Oh. And you and I were... Oh, the horse shitting on the ground? No. Oh, did were you there for that? Yeah. Oh. You see, I don't remember you from that, but I remember you from the Makor reading. I, don't, I think that might have been earlier, but, okay. but maybe okay. not. Actually meeting you happened at the Makor reading. And this, this is good. This is, this is maybe... Um, uh, good fodder for conversation because I remember so um, it's just such a strong alienation that I felt from you because you were reading from your second book mm-hmm. or maybe the poems that would become your second book and you read one about the ring of fire and about giving birth to your second son and about maternal ambivalence mm-hmm. all of my friends and I were still just sort of like um, you know, feeling desires and acting on them. And, you know, I think of that phase of my life as just imagining kissing and fucking and then just immediately making it real and then having it be over and then feeling bereft and then just doing the whole thing over and over and over again. And I could not understand, you know, I couldn't see the value in a marriage. I couldn't see the value in having a child, like all of the things that you were. And, and then, then, of course, maternal ambivalence um, was very frightening to me, hmm. although I didn't understand it as frightening at the time. I just I just um, remember feeling um, alienated and um, and confused by it. And so I thought of you as this fascinatingly unknowable person. <laughs> I don't remember anything about David's reading. Um, um, that's great. That's- it brings us sort of like right in to what I just wanted to mention is in the room, um, which is that there's a hundred different reasons I wanted to talk to both of you, but particularly talk to both of you together. And it has to do with maternal ambivalence, but it's not like, you know, limited to that because uh, there's so much there. But Sheila, did we meet through our conversation about the about the um, written conversation that Sarah and I had about this topic? I just when you guys were talking, I just went into my Gmail because my memory is as bad as yours. And I looked and I saw that actually we started corresponding when you did the roundtable with Matthew and Matthew Rohr and Wayne Kostenbaum for The Believer. And I was interviews editor there so that's where we started corresponding you did that amazing piece for us Mm. and then we met um at some point we were in new york and i was visiting i was around we were at a park near where you lived um we took a walk around in my memory there's like a pond but i don't think there would have been a pond uh well maybe maybe we walked all the way to the boat pond in central park maybe yeah and you told me a lot about your marriage. And I think that was after I had read your interview, your conversation with Sarah. 
which I wrote you both about, I remember, and I just loved. I mean, that conversation you guys had was, um, I don't think even to this day, and I've read a lot about, a lot of people writing about motherhood. Um, I still haven't read anything as honest and as, um, yeah, that that's that is as truthful as that conversation. So I was, I was really excited by by you. Yeah. So, so Sheila is talking about um, this conversation that you and I had, Sarah, that I can't quite remember how we decided to have this, but we oh, co- I remember. you do. Well, <laughs> we, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, it's in a nutshell. Um, you, I think it was very soon after you had given birth to your third son at home and, and it, it radicalized you and you had begun working on uh, home writing about home birth, becoming a birth, a home birth at activist, becoming a doula. And you sent a link to the video of you giving birth in the water. Mm. And I, and I watched it. And then I real I realized like, you know, with that very concrete um, artifact of that experience, I realized what you know i realized the gulf of experience between us and it for for the first time it just it became extremely interesting to me in that moment of of watching you give birth and i knew i needed to talk to you about it so i i wrote to you and just kind of thanked you for the the um the video and it wasn't long afterward that that you very kindly you know having three young children agreed to have this really, really long email conversation. Um, and then uh, a young, a young um, aspiring editor in New York was putting together this, what sounded like this fantastic magazine. I think it was fantastic, but it, it had one issue and then was abandoned, but um, right. it's on the internet, you know, as everything is, it's still on the internet. It's sort of the, I, the magazine, um, appropriately uh, is called Candor. Um, And I remember when we sort of published it online, I remember thinking at that time that it was the most provocative thing that I'd kind of gone public with. Um, I I was really afraid that in our discussion of, 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 uh, motherhood and and you know the conversation we'll put a link to it so I won't you know go back over all the pieces of it but but essentially we were talking about um, thinking about whether to become a mother you were thinking you weren't actually sorry that's not no. right um, we were talking about the gulf of experience if in fact such a gulf existed between mothers and women who uh, had were not mothers, and um, and we were sort of trying to work through our kind of uh, imagined fantasies of each other, and also um, the ways in which the difference between being a mother and not being a mother uh, pushes women apart. And we were asking each other questions about that and talking about our experiences. And I said some things in that piece um, that I was really worried would offend uh, women, um, women without children. And I reread it and uh, I remember feeling really glad that Sheila had responded by saying it was really helpful to her, not offensive, or at least if that was part of if she was offended, that wasn't her main feeling about it. Um, But I went back and reread it. 
Um, and I find it less offensive than I remember, although maybe my tolerance for offending people has gone up. I don't know. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of, you know, I'm in this really fascinating moment, and I assume the two of you are as well, because uh, now I've just read Sheila's uh, manuscript for her new book, Motherhood, which is in large part about that kind of, she's in a way talking to herself, but also to a lot of other people about the question about whether to become a mother or not, and, and really fascinatingly thinking through not just that question, but the real sort of personal and cultural and um, historical significance of uh, not just that decision, but the asking of that question um, in ways that I've never seen before. So I feel like we're all, um, and and then I've also just read your two most recent books, Sarah, um, 300 Arguments, and then right before it, Ongoingness, um, which in very different ways is about... Um, being a mother, because since that conversation, of course, you did um, become a mother. So we're in this like really fascinating space. And I kind of wanted to, I guess, ask you, Sarah, how you feel about that conversation. Um, in retrospect, um, how old is your son now? He's five. So okay, so five years into motherhood, how you feel about that conversation that we had way back when, and then Sheila, like, what that conversation means to you or, or how you're feeling after having written this incredible book um, and really having thought through that question uh, in a, in a really d intense and um, like uh, profound way. Okay. Should I go first? Yeah, this is Sarah not? speaking. Sure. Okay. Um, I just remembered that we're recording a podcast and that this isn't going to be, you know, edited for print. So um, I haven't read, I haven't reread that candor um, conversation in quite a while. And I do remember the feeling of writing it with you. And I, and, and, and it, it helps me remember the person that I was when I was writing it. I wrote something a few years after I had my son, um, an essay called The Grand Shattering, in, in which I sort of tried to take on your part of that earlier conversation, I wanted to try to communicate to women who weren't mothers or, you know, women women who are maybe anticipating becoming mothers, women who didn't want to be mothers, just just everybody on the other side of, uh, of that, of that so-called gulf, um, you know what what it was what it what it had felt like to me to become a mother and um how it had changed uh, just really like the very process of my thinking about anything and how it had changed me emotionally in ways that seemed uh at that point at least permanent and i imagined it as you know i had this grand plan that i would finally write a piece as a mother that would explain motherhood to people who weren't yet mothers in a way that was completely inoffensive and, <laughs> re and you know, I, it would be like uh, appreciated and, um, you know, valued by 
everybody on both sides of it. And of course I, you know, failed because uh, I remember exactly how it felt not to be a mother and to be, you know, condescended to by mothers saying like, oh, you know, it's a special love. It's a different love, blah, blah. You know, you can only feel it this way. And I remember how tired I felt every single time I read what seemed to be yet another iteration of this received idea, which couldn't possibly be true. And I, of course, read the comments under that piece when it ran on Harper's and, you know, they were vile and, um, and, and yet, you know, I, I understand them perfectly and I, you know, I, I forgive them all. And it's, um, it just, it seems, it seems to me just like an unbreakable, at least for me, it's been an unbreakable wall. I don't know how to talk about motherhood without making, you know, people who aren't mothers eyes just roll back in their head from the idiocy of it. You know, I think it's so some... angry. Do you remember, Sarah, you sent it to me? And I was like, so angry about that piece. And you and I have talked mm-hmm. so much about motherhood over the years. I'm like, you're one of the people that I was kind of writing my book to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we should say this or not, but like you and I had, you and I the were, had that packed in Los yeah. Angeles. We got together for lunch. I was visiting and you were living there and and we decided we're both going to have children. Like we're both yeah. going to be mothers. Little it's did I really know, serious. decided that you were going to be a mother like three months after meeting Adam, which now seems to make the well, past really yeah. not what I thought it was. Well, I should say <laughs> that, that decision was not unwavering. Um, it was it was a very strong feeling after I met Adam. But, you know, obviously we didn't get married for years and we didn't have a child for more than five years. So it was... Yeah, it, it, what, I, it, I wasn't keeping anything from you when when we made the pact. I really I felt that I was on a precipice. I hadn't yet gone over it. Like I don't know if that's the best metaphor. Like that. Anyways, yeah, you were just like we. Anyway, we decided we're going to be women writers, mothers. We were going to write from the point of view of having had children. I don't have children. Um, I don't think I will. And anyways, when I read when I read that piece that you wrote Sarah that was exactly how I felt like that sense of being condescended to that you don't really know life you don't you know um you haven't experienced the depths that I had so it's really interesting to me that you thought you were going to write a piece that makes everyone people who aren't mothers feel somehow included in I don't know what what you thought how you what was the greatest fantasy you had of somebody who was not a mother? Was it that they would have children after reading your piece? Um, no, that they just would, they would hear it as, as anything other than being condescended to. Because I know that's how I read every, um, every piece written from that subject position before I was a mother. I right. saw it only as condescension. Right. You know, I think it's really amazing I, I don't know what your perspective is um sarah but i feel that sheila's book actually is i don't find it condescending at all um uh, and and i find it to be the most um kind of useful description of imagining both sides of the gulf and i wonder to some extent if it's only possible for someone who hasn't had children to write from that position. I mean, of course, it, it, it's, a, it's a bizarre thing to say um, because it means that um, 
you know, you had said to me, I think at, at some point in the Kandra article, something about how um, only a mother has the experience of both not being a mother and being a mother. But so in some ways to say that someone who does not have children is more capable of writing about motherhood from without with avoiding this kind of like condescension is an odd thing to say. Uh, maybe if I can bring up a quote from the Candor article, Sarah, you said you brought up a quote from Cynthia Ozick in the Candor article conversation. Um, and Cynthia Ozick says, people often ask how I can reject the phrase woman writer and not reject the phrase Jewish writer. A preposterous question. Jewish is a category of civilization, culture, and intellect, and woman is a category of anatomy and physiology. It's rough thinking to confuse vast cultural and intellectual movements with the capacity to bear children. So first of all, she's talking, she's comparing being a woman writer and being a Jewish writer is not being a mother writer and being a Jewish writer. But um, I maintained during that discussion with you and still feel today um, that the capacity to bear children and definitely the experience of having and raising children um, is not just a category of anatomy and physiology to me. Um, that it is, to some extent, a culture and an, and an intellect and possibly even a form. But in another way, I would say that Sheila's book, Motherhood, is that form. Um, certainly the consideration of the, what it means to have the capacity to bear children or to, to raise children and to have one's womanhood be changed into motherhood. But I guess, I mean... Sarah, now that you are a mother, do you still feel this way that the that, you know, that this, that this is a preposterous question? And, you know, I don't know. Well, I think, um, I think I understand Ozek's position a little bit better than I did at the time. Um, I imagine myself at that time as this sort of ahistorical, um, you know, just physiologically just totally dissociated from my physiology I, I, I thought of myself as this floating mind in no in no time or place and I feel much more rooted in a culture in a time now and I see of course that Ozick is from you know two two and a half generations uh, that preceded mine and to be a woman artist or a woman intellectual you know, in her place and time, even in New York, you know, even in New York, even even with the, um, you know, social and professional uh, milieus that she occupied, I think it was really fucking difficult to be a woman. And it was probably, you know, even more difficult to be a woman with children and to be perceived as an intellectual. So her her defensiveness about that, I think, was was really necessary. Um, I think she, without, without taking that position, I think it would have been, um, she would have been giving, you know, the sort of patriarchal intellectual culture yet another reason to, you know, put her work aside and to say, you know, it's just like some, some, some mommy, some lady. Um, 
I think that must have had something to do with the way that she um, set up that comparison. I feel differently um, from, or I feel different, I guess I should say, uh, from the way I did. I, I now think that my physiology and my, you know, so-called mind are a lot closer than I used to think they were. Mm-hmm. I I wonder, Sheila, did I sent you an email? I don't know if you can um, access it. Um, if we were sitting together in a room, I would um, take your manuscript and hand it to you and say, would you be willing to read this? Um, but I couldn't do that because we're not in the same room. And I just pulled out some quotes that I felt like were really important. Do you see that? Uh-huh. I can see it on my phone. Yeah. Um, I wonder, uh, how do you feel first about, first of all, about reading um, some pieces of an unpublished manuscript? I, I can do it. Okay. I'll just say, like, for the record that I'm still editing this book. So even before you called, I was editing it. So any of these sentences may not actually appear in the final book, or they might be different. Mm-hmm. And I feel less like talkative than you guys do, because I'm still in the... I'm still in that state of thinking at all. Nothing's completely concluded, you know, in the book or in my head. So not that I'm so far from being done. I've got a, I've got a month left, but a month is a month. Nothing's concluded in the book, not about the this the question of either how we should uh, of, of motherhood or living our lives or what it all means. You meant well, it's ever. Conclu- I mean, <laughs> ever um, in any way, but. I guess I'm just trying to say that this book is still in process and my thoughts after you publish a book, you talk about it a bunch and you talk about the ideas in it a bunch and then you get to, you get these concrete thoughts, you know, and they become ever more concrete and I'm still in the mush, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're not even completely concrete yet in, in the book. So, so I'm just saying I'm a little more hesitant about, about speaking. It's weird to do, to talk about a book uh, and, you know, in this kind of form before it's even before you've even finished writing it. It's totally weird. And I I mean, I I also want to open up space to talk about um, just kind of literary friendship and the ways in which we do, uh, to use a birth metaphor, attend each other's births when we read, you know, or 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 hold the space for each other. um, uh, As we are when we show each other manuscripts and things in progress and 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 sort of stay with one another to some extent during these vulnerable places where we're just not sure how things are going to go we're not sure what's going to turn out you know um and so that also feels like such a charged moment um or just such a charged period of time both for you in the process of of not having this book be finished but also for both of us to be involved you know in in seeing the book in its unfinished state and i am i'm assuming but maybe i'm wrong that you guys have both been in that position with each other before like this is the first time i've read um 
uh, any of Sheila's work before it's been published. And Sarah, I've never read your work when it's been published. We've collaborated on that conversation and we've read together. So I might have heard pieces that um, were were not fully finished, but that's a different experience. Yeah, and you both are people that I wanted to read the book while I was finishing it. Like it was important to me to hear what you thought and it was important for me to hear what Sarah thought. You've both been in my brain as I've been working on this, like w- right when I started working on this, um, Rachel, I was at your house and you lent me some books about motherhood. I was reading a lot and just seeing, you know, picking up your son from school with you, like all, and your mother had just died when you and I, when I was starting this book and you had showed me your, you had sent me a draft unpublished of your book about your book mothers. And right. so it all feels really entwined to me. So I just also want to say like the fact of doing this conversation isn't bad. Like it's very, very good. It's just, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very fresh kind of feeling to talk about something before it's done in this way. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, let's have that fresh feeling. Um, so I was hoping that you would read, um, what I've just marked, uh, as 39 and 40, which I can't even remember if those aren't even on the same page. Well, um, I, in the email I have, you only go up to 30. So <laughs> okay. Five, okay. Hold maybe on. 29 and 30. So actually it's five and six on your email. Okay. Okay. Five and six. So these are, okay. Um, so here's two parts, two quotes from the book. Uh, okay. The problem for a woman is not giving yourself enough space or time. I squeeze myself into the moments I allow or the moments which have been allowed for me. I do not stretch out in time languidly, but allot myself the smallest parcels of time in which to exist, miserly. I let everyone crowd around me. I am miserly with myself when it comes to time and space, and this is all too womanly. But having children would lead to the most miserly allotment of time and space. Maybe one has children to take away the responsibility of all that time and allot oneself nothing. Having children solves the impulse as a woman to give oneself nothing and makes that impulse into a virtue. To feed oneself last in self-abnegation, to fit oneself into the smallest spaces in the hopes of being loved, that is entirely womanly. To be virtuously miserly towards oneself in exchange for being loved, having children gets you there fast. I want to take up as much space as I can in time, stretch out and stroll with nowhere to go, and give myself the largest parcels of time in which to do nothing, let my obligations slip to the ground, reply to no one, please no one, leave everyone hanging impolitely, and try to win no one's favor, not pile up politenesses doled out to just everyone in the hopes of being pleasing, to not be thrown out of society as I fear I will be if I don't live like a good maid gingerly. I get nostalgic for being a teenager for this reason. It never occurred to me then to be nice to other people. I look back at that time as a time of great freedom, but that was the great freedom, that I didn't give a fuck. I cannot give a fuck any more than I already do. I feel it would be the end of me. Having children is nice. What a great victory to be not nice. The nicest thing to give the world is a child. Do I ever want to be that nice? So these passages and many other others in uh, motherhood just cut me to the quick. 
Sheila. Me too. It's ugh, I love this book. I love <laughs> this book too, but it's it is it is it's wounding me and and it's really interesting because you know, I have two teenagers now. My oldest is about to turn 18 and my middle son is um 16 and a half and you know, uh I feel I feel like you without children are describing my experience of motherhood in the most accurate ways that I've seen. Um you know, I cannot give a fuck any more than I already do. I feel it would be the end of me is a really painfully accurate description. Um, and my my feeling, my my suspicion that you you may be right, that um, part of why I, I became a mother may very well be uh, to be virtually virtuously miserly towards myself. Um, and but here I am in that state um, with no one to blame. Is that your cat? It's my cat. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I don't even really know what I'm saying, except I, I think I was, I wanted you to read um, those sections because I, I think it was, it was going to help me describe what I was trying to say before about, I don't feel condescended to, certainly. Um, I feel seen, exposed, and um, like in deeply, gratefully, horribly described in some weird way. Um, and so I'm interested in the fact that I don't think you set out to write this book necessarily, you know, towards or for me and Sarah, although maybe you did. Um, but I think that in some ways, Sarah set out to write that that piece in a way towards or for someone like, like you, Sheila, and it didn't, you, you felt um, sort of alienated by it. Um, I feel if anything, too, uh, I wouldn't give it up. But I feel almost like so painfully exposed to myself that I can like barely stand it. Well, That's... I think Sarah and I are kind of different. Like, I feel, Sarah, like you, whenever you write, you write from a place of much more certainty than I do. Like, you, you, before you had children, you felt you knew the answer. And the answer was not to have children, you know, to be somebody that has, like, dangerous sex and does coke or whatever. Like, I don't know if you did coke or if it was just your boyfriend's coke knife that he cut your pantyhose with and fucked you through. Like, that image is so vivid in my head from that essay. But and then when you had children, you felt very certain that in some ways the the thing to do was to have children. And I think certainty can be alienating to people who don't share that certainty. Whereas when I write, it's always from a place of self-doubt. And so this book where I write that those passages for me, it's just like I'm terrified of being a mother. I'm terrified of my impulses towards um, giving up all this time and empty space and emptiness, which I love to live in. Um, and I'm, and, and, and my not having children doesn't feel like the right decision or a victorious decision. It's just where I am. But if I had children, I would not feel like that was the right decision either. So I'm always kind of in the wrong place. So if you're always writing from this feeling of being in the wrong place, having made the wrong choice, I think that probably, um, that can't really alienate in the same way as 
uh, if you're writing from feeling like you you've made a good choice. That's a really interesting point. And I think I agree with you to a point. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that uh, I feel like I made the good decision or the right decision. Um, Those words don't, don't feel like what I'm trying to articulate. They seem sort of off to the side of it. I, in writing, well, in writing the grand shattering, I, I want, I, I knew, I, I was certain that something had happened, and what had happened was that I had changed my mind. That was what I was trying to write about. But um, I know that it sounded as though I were certain that it may, it, that it may have been the good or right decision to have children. What I was certain about, though, was that I, I had, I had lived in a way that sounds similar to the way that you want to occupy time and you know, the way that you want to be a self in time and that I had, I had become, I, you know, I, I had, I had grown or not grown, but I had become a person who existed in time in a completely different way. And that it was not, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to articulate it. It, it it was it was different and it surprised me that it it felt and and still feels so interesting and i can't i can't deny that i i take up less space in space and i take up less time in the time and that much of what i do in a day can easily be filed under the word sacrifice and service but it's interesting to me to kind of see what is left for me as this self that has, you know, already abnegated so much, or if I'm using that word correctly, a self that has already sacrificed so much of its self. Um, it, it's very interesting to sort of see, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not smaller than what I was. Perhaps I'm larger, but you're there. But small and large again just seem seem like they're they're not really um, descriptive of what of what has actually happened. And I have so much um, I don't know if envy is the right word, but like I covet the knowledge that you guys have, you know. And at the same time, I don't want to do any of those things that you guys have to do as mothers. But the but that I'm such a curious person, and it's really hard to be so curious, such a curious person, and not experience this what you describe Sarah as this different existential like relationship to yourself and life and, and, you know, death and human, like that's really hard not to know that. So Sarah, uh, Rachel, it makes me happy that you say that there's something that I'm getting something down that's correct about what it might feel like to be a mother. But I, I feel very far away from that knowledge um, that I'll never, I'll never have it. Well, I think, you know, uh, I mean, I'll ne- I'll never have not have my own experience of of um, being of becoming and being a mother, and and yet there's there are all sorts of experiences that um, I'm not able to attend to or pay attention to. Um, and so there's all sorts of experiences, not just like the, you know, the, the, you know, there's lots of experiences that both of you have had, um, that I haven't had. Um, and certainly that many women, um, who 
have decided not to ever have children have had, um, you know, like, I haven't had that much sex. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't had very many partners. There's all sorts of things like, to some extent, those are just two like really kind of clear and practical things to me. Like in some ways, my like, you know, I do have the experience of a very long marriage. But um, in other ways, I haven't had to uh, kind of like have a sexual partner or a romantic partner uh, to since I was, I don't know, 23 or something. So I'm like, my experience is like bizarrely arrested in that way. Um, or the other thing I was thinking about that's really clear to me after reading uh, Motherhood is that I think that in my book, Mothers, I really was trying to talk about my relationship with my mother, um, as much or more as I was talking about my relationship with my kids. But because there was all this mirroring going on, and all of this, you know, I I had the three kids, and I was, you know, utterly uh, distracted by them, I, I wasn't able to really fully explore what motherhood meant to me, um, in terms of my relationship with my mother and my consideration of my mother's motherhood. And you, Sheila, really do that in a way that I feel like I tried to but couldn't achieve in in mothers. Um, and I, and I, I'm not sure if you could have done that. Maybe you could have, but I, maybe you couldn't have if you were also at the same time writing about being a mother yourself. Like you got at something about motherhood in terms of your own mother that I that I'm still trying to figure out. I feel the same way. There's a completeness about about that book about motherhood that's uh, it's such a comfort to know that that degree of completion. Is that how it seems to you, Rachel? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I told Sheila this, that I'm like deeply uh, jealous and uh, just, uh, you know, unsettled is not the right word um, by the moment in, in motherhood where uh, Sheila shows the manuscript to her mother. And of course, her mother responds very differently than my mother responded. Um, You know, it's pretty devastating um, for me. But I do think that that is part of the completeness. Um, There is a working through in lots of different ways. Um, You know, I, I think that there are, I'm, I'm thinking about my book, Mothers, and I, when I, I I think about this all the time, like what was it ultimately that my mother just could not tolerate in my book? And if I had to narrow it down to one thing, you know, in addition to being exposed in ways that she didn't want, I think it was my admission in that book that I did not want my mother to um, be around me after I gave birth to my youngest son, um, that I didn't want her to be there. And that kind of um, confession and the betrayal of that, um, I think, I think was ultimately the most devastating part of that book for her. And I think that the, that, you know, all three of us have written and have certainly thought a lot about the ways in which we want to be like our mothers or not like our mothers, the ways in which we, you know, shut our mothers out or protect ourselves from our mothers or try to get closer, you know, to figure out who they really are. Um, and I think that that there's there's some intergenerational um, 
like chasm that opened up uh, for my mother when I said, in the moment of birth and becoming a mother, I just did not want you there. And, uh, you know, I think there's, I'm for sure other, um, other things for both of you, like Sarah, I imagine that your illness um, uh, was a completely uh, remothering, redaughtering, shifting of the relationship between you and your mother. Um, but I think that in that moment in Sheila's book, there, it, it, it's they are able to um, come together in a different way and have some level of like understanding and resolution um, that I, I think maybe can't really happen once, once a woman becomes a mother, because there is something about that, about becoming a mother that you, you do on some level, basically uh, explicitly or implicitly turn to your own mother and say, I am now not that interested in you. And I am, I am primarily interested in this other person. And do you feel like, would you say, Rachel, you turn to your mother and you say, I'm not that interested in you. Is there also this statement of like, I'm the mother now. And so in some ways, the mothering of your mother, you push, like you replace her. I think not only, I, you know, I'll only speak for myself. I know that, that many women really want their mothers um, with them um, when they become mothers, either at the birth or just in those early stages. Like I just reread Carmen Jimenez Smith's um, uh, beautiful memoir called Bring Down the Little Birds, where she describes giving birth to her um, second, being pregnant and giving birth to her second child as her mother is becoming increasingly um, losing her memory and becoming ill. And, you know, Carmen describes just this like deep ache and need for her mother. Um, so yeah. I know that that is some women's experience. It not only did I feel like I was sort of replacing my mother, but I felt this like really fierce, like I have to protect these little chicks from this very dangerous force. Um, and I think that you can have a vexed relationship with your mother and it's going to be painful and difficult and you can feel that you need to protect yourself. I think that something about the feeling of needing to protect your children against your mother or your own self in the moment of becoming the mother against your mother um, is is very uh, dangerous or, or something. Well, certainly hurtful to your mother. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's re it's really interesting to hear you talk about about all of this. Um, I, yeah, I I don't think I have a conventionally mm, close attachment to my mother, so I I don't I don't feel those things, uh, and I didn't feel those things. I didn't want my mother there while I was giving birth. And um, in a way, that is sort of what I'm trying to write about now in this new book, which is which is about, I mean, I don't even know. I can't see the circumference of it yet, but it's about the conversion of fear into cruelty, and it's about Boston, and it's about my parents, and it's about so many things. Um, but one of those things is this, um, I think, unusual um, degree of unattachment that I have to my own mother. There's something, this is an abrupt subject change, um, 
but Rachel, I think it's worth um, mentioning that the you know there, there's obviously the difference between us and Sheila is that we're mothers and she's not. But the difference between me and Sheila and you is that you became a mother. Um, I mean, did you did you have your first son when you were 23, or is that when you I just had got together with Moses when I was 26? 26. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I had um, my child when I was 38. Which is maybe, you know, it's not, it's not like a, um, you know, it's, we could have gone earlier and later, but 12 years is, you know, it's, it's like half a, half a generation. Right. And and so I feel in, in some ways that my experience is as different from yours as it is from Sheila's. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I think there's so I mean, I wish I could like draw uh, right now on the podcast, and I would make some like crazy marks because, you know, we didn't really stay with what Sheila said very long about certainty. But I do feel like there's so many fascinating ways in which, okay, maybe Sheila and I are more alike in certain way than you, Sarah, and then Sarah and I are more alike in certain ways than Sheila, and then Sheila and Sarah than me. But I do feel that that I do th- feel that you write largely out of certainty. It doesn't mean you're always certain, but your writing has a, a, a real quality of, of certainty um, that I think is really fascinating. And I, and I feel much more closely aligned with Sheila in the sense that I feel like my, my, not my writing and my entire experience of life feels constantly like doubt, 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 doubt. Like I'm now I'm the mother of three children. I've been doing this for a long time. I have a lot of experience. And on some emotional level, I am still asking the question, should I become a mother? <laughs> it's I like a crazy. I know, yeah, I know. No, but there's, there, a, yeah, there's, yeah, go ahead. But go ahead. there is a way in which I, I can't quite figure out how to describe it. And I wouldn't have used the word certainty until Sheila did. But I think there's something really important there. And I was going to bring up a second sort of axis or continuum or whatever, which is that um, Sheila, uh, you emailed me saying you liked uh, the podcast, but you didn't understand why I kept bringing up shame and why I kept saying that I felt a lot of shame uh, in doing the podcast. And I think that Sheila, one of the things I so um, admire and and like get like I'm drawn to in Sheila's work is that I don't think she writes so much out of shame. And Sarah, I think you and I do um, in different ways. But I I just think there's so many interesting, uh, you know, there's womanhood, motherhood, sexuality, shame, confession, um, uh, formal kind of uh, invention or, or range. There's confidence, there's certainty, there's doubt, there's it. I, you know, I, we need some kind of visual for this, you know, of, yeah. of overlapping Venn diagrams. Yeah. And for me, I would say the most the, the two most important are class and race. Mm-hmm. Um, and Boston, you know, it, it, they're, they're, it, it, it's almost like they're, they're almost co-synonymous, those three words, when I start trying to talk about where I come from and why I am the way I am. Um, you know, there, 
the the not knowing whether you should have children yet though is is so I know I've already said this but it's so familiar to me and also Sheila I know you know this but there's a page in my book on goingness where I um I basically write down a part of a conversation that Sheila and I had about motherhood pretty soon after I had my son in which I say to her you know, one of the great comforts of my life is that I no longer need to wonder whether I should have children. And there is a kind of certainty about that. Like, I will always have had a child that is deeply comforting. And I guess I like to inhabit that the comfort of that certainty. But, you know, I feel that I, I have to defend myself and just say that every book I've ever written has come out of a, a need to solve a problem. You know, this... Um, uh, a moment in which I was just sur- so surrounded by doubt that there was nothing to do but try to write my way out of it. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same when Actually, it's Sarah is like, there's various conversations that we've had, you and I, that are in my book as well. And I didn't, I'll just, I didn't, I think one of the spurs for writing this book was after you had your child, you, I was still full of doubt. I don't know if I should or not. and And you were just, I don't know if we were talking or if it was over email, but you almost, in my mind, you were like revolted. You were like, ugh, that period of life where you don't know, like I'm so glad to have that over with and just have decided, like it was just nauseating, nauseating for you to put yourself back in the, you know, in the state that I was in. Um, and I, and your saying that made me think, oh, this is a state, like this is a period in not every person's life, but in a number of people's lives where where you are debating that almost endlessly to a sickening degree and it makes you feel sick. Um, uh, and I, I was like, well, I think I should, I need to stay here a little longer than, than you did, Sarah, and just like get that down no matter what I do at the end of that, because I hadn't realized it was a shared, so much of a shared, uh, um, moment until you said that. That might, (sighs) Listening to listening to you articulate that makes me think that maybe it's a fixed pole in someone's personality, the level of tolerance she has for that time before the decision is made. I I know that I have a very low tolerance for that position, that subject position. I want to pull the trigger every time, whether it was sleeping with someone, you know, when I was thinking about doing that in my in my 20s and 30s. Um, the having a child, you know, certainly I occupied that kind of halfway position for much longer, um, that, you know, I think that was probably a good thing that I did that, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I know, I know, I know that in my work when I'm thinking about how to, how to form a piece of writing, like when to write something, if I, I can't, I can't put suspense in, you know, like I could never write a mystery novel, I, I just I have to I have to get out of that as soon as possible. I have to get to the point at which I've already made the decision. Hmm. I'm sort of now at this point where if I find myself in a very unhappy situ- state, like I'll keep myself there because I like well, you can just like leave, like walk out the door, or you can write your way out of it. And it's like well, I I might as well write my way out of it. And I think that you know this whole this whole period, these past few years of of doubt was also like a period of like real unhappiness. I'm not sure if not knowing what your life is going to be or what you're going to do with your life causes like so much sadness or if like the sadness is what makes you feel like you can't stake a position either way, you know? Um, 
yeah, it could be. Certainly, I was just like, I'll just stay here. I'll just sit here. <laughs> because I'm like you, like Sarah, my, I'm also a very impulsive person. And and only as I've gotten older, have I have I tried to like, um, explore like not, not being impulsive and, 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 and what can come out of, of that of just like, yeah, drawing it out, drawing out the indecision and the misery of that. Yeah. Oh, I'm I I envy your impulsivity. This is not a trait that I I can I I, I need to be more impulsive. Um, but I love this idea that like there are conversations that you've had that are in Sarah's books and in Sheila's books. Um, you know, not necessarily named. Um, and certainly, uh, how should a person be was hugely hugely present. Um, for me in in the writing that I did after I read that book in so many ways, including the question itself, um, which I feel like is what I was trying to ask in a lot of my writing, also kind of resisting the tyranny of beauty was was really a huge part, a huge influence on me. Um, and like the beauty sentences, you mean? Like the, what, what beauty in what sense? Or form or, or like both. just like... Both. Right. The... the uh, I mean, first of all, the the form um, and the form of two kinds of decay. Uh, I I really was like, I'm sick of poetry. I want to write books like this. Um, and everything I write, just everybody thinks is poetry. So I didn't succeed at that. Um, but I thought I was exploring forms that were much more similar to the not novel novel and the sort of uh, fragmented uh, memoir. Um, but you know, I don't know, I, I get I'm put in the poetry box. Um, yeah, but, well, it, it'll last another couple of books, but you can get out of it. <laughs> Speaking from experience. What do you call mothers, uh, or what did you call it when you were writing it, Rachel? Like, what did you have a category for it, like a, uh, a shared category? I thought it was a memoir, um, but then I was told, like, when I tried to get it published, like, this can never be published because there's too many quotes in it and it's too much about poets but it's not poetry but it kind of is poetry but there's like no audience for it and um and it's too it's too you know fragmented and whatever um so and it, I, I don't think it entirely reads uh like a memoir but then it, you know that that was exciting to me um that although i didn't have that intention i didn't really know what i was doing um until i was done and then i but I think I feel like that all the time. Like the book I'm working on now, I guess is is a book of poetry, but it it also feels like lectures. And then I have a book of lectures that don't that aren't really like lectures. I don't. I I mean, you know, in no, this way, just, I feel like we're always well, all three of us are doing that. Yeah, I, I think the word book is always like the word in my head. Like I'm writing a book, and then like everything else just seems sort of forced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that way too. I have what to. What do you call ungoingness and what do you call 300 arguments? Like, do you call, Sarah, do you call it like a book of aphorisms? Like, or no. do you call it a fiction or poetry? Uh, or, uh, or well, in my, you know, if I'm, if I'm the one writing my so-called professional biography, I just say books, like I'm the author of books, including title, 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 and title. Um, you know, and then the marketing category is some other thing. 
I I don't really care what you know. Some people called three hundred arguments poetry, and I, I that's fine. Um, the one thing that I don't want them to be called is is aphorisms. Oh, actually, aphorisms are fragments, hmm. um, which they're not. They're complete in themselves. But um, you know, I just I just sort of I give up. Uh, somebody who who kind of helped me feel okay to to give up on that that whole argument it was Annie Dillard because all of her books are kind of distinct from each other formally and you know in length and in in many other ways and if you look at her you know self-written bio she has these somewhat um you know tortured phrases to describe the you know so-called marketing category of each of her books and um, and you know, you, you read them, and you just think, yeah, this is they're they're in a way inarticulable. I mean, except maybe for the novels, which can more easily, I think, be called novels. But many of her nonfiction books are just sort of, um, you know, I don't even remember the phrases that she uses, but I think she has a distinct phrase for like five or six of them that she doesn't repeat. And um, uh, yeah, uh, gosh, I don't. Maggie Nelson. Um, says in in her bio you know she's the the author of a certain number of books of poetry and prose and the rest of it is yes it's it's for somebody else to kind of worry or argue about although i should say that you know sheila you've certainly been the recipient of much um you know private uh tearing of hair about what to call this or that um, especially this book that i'm working on whether to call it a novel and it was it was incredibly helpful when you just said, you know, think, call, call it a book. And then when you're done, you'll decide whether to put the word novel on the front or put, put some other word on it. It's, it's absolutely beside the point. That was extremely helpful. The only the good thing about the word novel for me, among other, I mean, the best thing is that it just, it helps, it helps a bit with privacy or with people not with with mm. people just like focusing a little bit more on the form and little a little less on you and your life it's it's sort of a useful tag especially if you're a woman to have that um because people think everything's true anyways <laughs> you know but yeah. i always feel like there's this idea in, in the culture that women don't really have an imagination the same way men do like men invent and women sort of just take directly from their lives so i feel like the word novel helps like you know push things a little bit more in the direction of well you know i do also have an imagination and not only imagination but um can can think objectively about what i'm doing i'm not just like lost in the morass of self you know there's like choices and formal choices that are being made um I mean, I think someone could write an utterly fascinating article or dissertation about the criticism or the, you know, the critical reception of both of your work. It's so incredibly gendered. I mean, I, I, I it's, you know, I remember reading a, a positive review of um, How Should a Person Be in which, which was all about sort of like the trend of oversharing you know, right. uh, and then I just I just read uh, today a positive review of um, I think it was of ongoingness. No, maybe it was 300 arguments, but they call your books anorexic. Her yeah. anor I was like, really? Like, yeah, it's yeah. just <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love this idea of like, we'll just call it a book or call it a novel and let the marketing, you know, people take care of it themselves. But it's also true that um, what to call someone or what to call a book 
um, and how to describe it is so incredibly, uh, you know, weighted down with all this, you know, sexism and misogyny and, and just bullshit. Um, yeah, that made me very angry, especially, um, yeah, most especially after I published Ongoingness, there seemed to be this gleeful uh, hysteria by certain, let's just say, male critics to belittle it and to, you know, condescend to it. Um, but and then it's, but in, they're also... And in so doing, condescend to me as, as a human, you know, as a human person. It And it was, it got so ugly that I think I just burned through all of my available rage. Mm-hmm. And now I just, I don't care. I mean, I know that they sound idiotic when they try to belittle a work because it came out of the mind of somebody who, you know, possesses a, a uterus or a vagina. And it, it was so in, uh, like, uh <sighs> Uh, maddening because it was the the piece I remember was it it was simultaneously uh, praising you you know for your beautiful economic sentences and 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 at the same time totally belittling you know your body of work in this in this like crazy uh, impossible way that that I that I felt like was just right out of all the, the ways that women are praised and belittled um, uh, I, all right, I have to ask you a question. This is going back to um, the way in which you show up in each other's work. Um, in Sarah's book, there's a quote. She says, I annotated my friend's book manuscript with scribbles on every page. She annotated mine with a single note. This needs to be better. She trusted that I would know what to do. And I did. Was that Sheila or a different friend? Actually, I have to confess, I stole that from Sheila. Um, <laughs> you did? I... Yeah, yeah. you told me that that had happened to you with um, somebody else having, no, it, I, I think it was like a combination. You had told me that um, another writer had read a manuscript of yours and just given you one note, this needs to be better, and you said that it was just it completely opened up what needed to be opened up and you were able to fix the book. And I thought, wow, I would never, I would never have the confidence in my, you know, editorial, I don't know, my editorial affect to just say that, you know, when people give me their books, I just, I line out at the shit out of them usually. And I was just really impressed by that effect, you know, of your report of that effect. And so I kind of combined my, you know, my, just all of my feelings about my um, lack of confidence and my shame about my lack of confidence and my amazement at, at this thing that you had reported to me. I So I read that as I was also reading Sheila's manuscript. And I didn't think, oh, maybe this is about Sheila. But I it totally stopped me from being able to, um, I didn't know how to then respond to Sheila. Because the idea that if someone had had uh, responded to um, my manuscript and said, this needs to be better, I, I, I think I would like, lie down on the floor for like two years and not get up I, I just don't know I don't know how I could had, could I, I I think I would just say but I 
I know and I don't know how and I can't like I would just go into an infantile despair and rage um if you knew you weren't done and somebody said to you, like, you know, sometimes we share our work, or at least I do, before it's done because I want somebody to say, "That's this is brilliant. This is like the best thing I've ever read. And I'm like, great, I don't have to work on it anymore. But if, if you do share a piece of work in that state where you know secretly it's not really done and you just want to be let off the hook from finishing it and then somebody says, this is not done, you know what they're talking about. Mm. Don't I, you think? Like, you know what you have, you know, the debt, you know, where you have to go, where, which is the place that you haven't gone that you didn't think you'd have to go and you could trick people and, you know, into thinking it was done. I don't know if I do know that. I don't think I know where to go. I think that I, I think that I'm always looking, I mean, this is in part what Mothers was about. I'm always looking for a mother and the fantasy of the, of a mother. And you don't have, you don't describe this relationship with your mother, Sarah, or I mean, Sheila, and I don't think you have this relationship with your mother, um, Sarah, but like my fantasy is that a mother, the mother, whatever, is going to tell you what to do. And, uh, and, and of course, like, becoming a grown up to some extent is realizing that nobody can tell you what to do. And yet I'm 45 years old. And I am the mother uh, in my family now and my mother's dead. And um, she also never occupied that role um, for me anyway. But I'm still like bereft of the of the fantasy that somebody is going to tell me what to do, take care of me, show me the way. Um, and instead of realizing the freedom and excitement that comes with being an adult and getting to to choose yourself or to have that feeling you're describing, Sheila, of like, yeah, I know what to do. I, I knew this wasn't done and I know what to do. I, I just always only feel abandoned. Mm. Abandonment is definitely a, an elemental, you know, fear and despair that I think is, it, it has been pretty character forming for me. Um, I'm not feeling it so intensely right now. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's very interesting to hear this because I, well, the book of yours that I know the best is Museum of Accidents. I've read that a thousand times. And before I was a mother and, you know, immediately after I became a mother and, and now I am certain that it is one of the best representations in writing any kind of art of motherhood that I've ever seen. And that I wonder whether your feeling of abandonment was quite as intense during those years that you had young children, during which there's just, there's nothing but the, the constant attention to the children. It's like, it's like a channel that never turns off. Mm. Um, I think it, and I think abandonment is this like large looming thing. It has to occupy a lot of space before you can even engage it. Did your abandonment feeling change over time is it like is it like taking more space now that your kids are older and of course I'm asking this as a person who has a little kid and I can't even imagine having teenagers I mean I think that's a great question and I think that might be a partial reason for 
how uh, just flattening it was for me to read Sheila's book motherhood because I do think that my experience of having um, you know two children when I was very young and not ready in a certain way even though I really set out to do that um, and and wanted it but I just wasn't you know ready in a certain way I mean I don't know if anyone's ready but I definitely wasn't Um, you know I think that I could not afford a lot of feelings um, like I couldn't on some level afford to be abandoned to feel abandoned because it was too terrifying and because all of my mental and emotional and physical energy was um, directed at keeping these children alive and keeping some some not necessarily a sense of self but at least um, being aware of the way in which my self was kind of annihilated but staying alive through that um and so i i i think that on the one hand the the period that i'm in now um is profoundly disappointing uh because i thought that you know when my kids were older then i would go back to being myself and i would have more time and i would have more mental emotional creative you know space that isn't what is happening for me right now um if anything the challenges of motherhood are not physically as rigorous but emotionally are are just beyond my pay grade you know so far beyond what I feel capable of, um, that I'm in another sort of state of emergency. But on the other hand, I do think um, that there is an openness or a receptivity to certain kinds of emotional complexity that I wasn't able to feel uh, when my kids were little. I don't know how happy I am that it's like, yeah, now I'm really exploring my abandonment issues. Um, Mm. (laughs) And my, you know, uh, attachment uh, problems. Um, But I am and I think in part because of, you know, when Sheila describes uh, in that moment that she read that that fuck you uh, freedom of being a teenager. Man, I'm faced with that every day. Um, and I think I feel on some level really angry because I don't think I ever felt that myself. So I'm, so I'm trying to withstand, you know, these, this, the human beings that I love so much saying to me, literally, fuck you and feeling fuck you about the world and trying to keep them safe and trying to, you know, kind of be patient with them through that while at the same time feeling like, when am I ever going to get to have the, you know, fuck you moment um, and, and it's still not now, but it's still yeah. what I do get is like, oh, great. I get to really, you know, really investigate abandonment. <laughs> do you think you'll ever get that? Like, this is my, this is my, uh, aren't you a mother for like, when you're, when your kids are out of the house, are you going to have another, another stage that's just as consuming in your motherhood or do you think there'll ever be a time when you get that fantasy of just returning to some kind of solitude? Like, I, I, I guess you don't have an answer for that cause you haven't experienced it, but 
I, I suspect that I will not, as you're saying. I mean, you know, um, my son Moses is going to go to college in the, in the fall. So we're just months away from this new stage of motherhood where he won't be living with me. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know what that's going to be like. I, I do know what the anticipation of that is like. And I think I had a fantasy that it would be difficult, but that it would also feel like a kind of freedom. Um, it does not feel like that to me. Um, and you know, be scared for because you can't see yeah. him. I mean, I, I can, I, if I talk about it too much, I will just start crying now. Like I, I feel my primary feeling is that I don't know how to take care of him when he doesn't live here. And yeah. that is a, that is a just, um, it's, it's almost an intolerable feeling. Oh, wow. And I'm amazed that you guys could choose these intolerable, this to me, like this, these intolerable feelings in this intolerable state that you could choose it three times over. Like to me, not even being a mother, that's what I project. I just project like the rest of my life full of terror. Like uh, it's hard for me to see how people can have children because I can't see anything except the pain and the terror and the, the lack of control, you know, over this vulnerable creature and, you know, the world coming in and doing what it will with it. Like it just seems terrifying. It is, but there's the love, though. I mean, here I go again with my condescending description of the, you know, the special love. You get your special love ticket when you become a mother and you're you're led into this new, this new realm. But I, that, so, I was, yeah. that's so interesting, Sarah, because I was about to say, well, but I have avoided other terrors that you have, Sheila. Like, I, what, I think it was in your, I can't, now I'm mixing ongoingness and um, 300 arguments because I read them back to back. But I think you said, Sarah, uh, it, it's a quote from one of them. I've written whole books in order to avoid writing other books, which is like so, so true. My God. Um, but, you know, maybe I've chosen this terror um, to avoid other terrors. I mean, I, I and I mean, I I don't know what your experience is like, Sheila, but I, I think that I think that I chose it's in some ways to get married very young and to have children, uh, you know, as soon as I could convince Josh to do it um, in part to uh, avoid another kind of terror, um, which when I imagine that that's what you feel and you might not, that feels more terrifying than the terror I feel. And I guess I would just say that that terror is about, you know, going through life without a witness um, or, or without, um, to, f to feel like you're gonna, uh, just float away. Um, I don't mean the terror of like not being married or not, you know, conforming to the culture's expectations of women. That's like some bullshit thing. Um, but very strong. I mean, like I, there are moments where I, 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 I think that I felt as a child, um, and, 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 and increasingly so before I got married and, you know, or met Josh or like had a feeling, um, and I still feel it sometimes now, but this feeling of like, I'm just not even sure I exist. Um, For me, what writing does, like it's my way of witnessing my 
own life or myself and 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 the feeling i also feel like i don't exist but then like somehow books or proof books are proof of my existence like mm-hmm. that maybe making concrete one's life in the form of books is the solution to that um terror right and you say that really over and over again in motherhood um that and I and I thought I kept thinking that when I read the books like you know not that I wish I didn't have children I I I'm glad I had children and I, it was like a def, you know the defining desire that I had um uh but I do there were moments when I was reading motherhood where I thought you know if you had just held on a little bit and like really become an adult and like become a writer and 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 make peace you know or and like experience the ways in which a book could help you feel like you existed then you might not have felt that same drive um to be connected to other people in this particular way yeah yeah I mean, both of us, Rachel, when I think about it, like, and Sarah, I don't know uh, much about your mother. Maybe it's the same for you, but, you know, your mother, Rachel, was very preoccupied with her life and her work, and so was my mother. And my solution to that was to be like my mother in the sense of, well, I'm also going to be preoccupied with my life and my work, you know? And you went in the opposite, or you sort of did the opposite. You're mm-hmm. like, well, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be the mother that my mother wasn't. And, it's interesting, like we can have sort of similar experiences of our own mothers and then go take completely opposite solutions to that, that feeling of whatever neglect or abandonment or, you know, not existing for our mothers. Yeah. To that feeling in completely opposite ways where I'm going to like validate it by doing the same thing. I'm going to do it even, you know, even better (laughs) than she did that, that exact same thing. Well, well, you'll do what she didn't. There's a way in which I was just thinking about this as you were talking, Sheila, like there's a way and I maybe this is what you were trying to talk about before when you used the word certainty to to, to describe um, Sarah, but I do have this like ridiculous um, feeling that like Sarah is an adult, and you and I are not. <laughs> and I've always, <laughs> I've always kind of felt that, um, Sarah, like, you know, I, I definitely don't feel that becoming a mother made you an adult. I feel like when I met you, and I had kids and you didn't, I felt I, I felt that you were an adult and I wasn't. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I was definitely... I did not feel like an adult when I met you, either, either of you, really. Although, you know, all I'm doing is just comparing the way that, you know, the way that I feel exactly right now with the way that I felt at those other moments. And obviously, I'm considerably older. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's so interesting. So there's, a, there's I guess I, I guess I, I'm trying to now categorize both of you. And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who's an adult. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what it. I don't know what you mean, really. Okay, you do seem like adult, Sarah. Like even and when I met you at Yaddo too, you you had that. You there's some. I know you have all your own angst, but there's something serene that I've always seen in you. That's like that you can take care of yourself. You're not. You don't have these feelers out in the world. At least from my impression of like 
what what Rachel was talking about looking for a mother you don't seem like you're looking for someone to take care of you you know you're you take care of yourself and I don't know if that's related to your sickness or that's just who you've always been but that's maybe that's the adultness that you 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 are picking up in in Sarah Rachel mm-hmm. yeah, it could it could be yeah I mean I've been on medication since I was 21 for one thing or another and so I mean I definitely notice that you know just the need to take medication several times a day for now more than half my life is very different from the way that my husband navigates his day like he can you know wake up at a slightly different time or go to bed at a slightly different time he doesn't have to you know take pills in the same order but I think that I wouldn't compare it with, I mean, I wouldn't compare it to mothering exactly, but it is a, it's a kind of, I don't know, I guess you could call it responsibility, you know, but this, this responsibility for making sure I don't get sick is definitely that's something that's, just, you know, it's just, it's just part of every hour of my life. But I, I don't want to overstate it though. I mean, it's not like, it's not actually every hour of my life. I don't know, but it's, it's the, maybe it's the only categorical difference between us. Maybe that's my thing, the way, the way in which you guys are similar and I'm different mm-hmm. now that we've, we've all sort of Venn diagrammed ourselves <laughs> symmetrically, perfectly symmetrically. You know, there's another person I feel like is in this conversation. Well, there's, there are a lot of people, obviously, who are um, ghostly presences in this conversation, our mothers, obviously, um, our other friends, our other writing influences, but particularly I'm thinking about Molly Peacock, um, who I recently um, recorded a podcast conversation with her. Um, it hasn't aired yet, but it, it will. Um, and I, in the conversation I had with her, she was describing uh these uh, writing retreats that she takes with her friend Phyllis Levin. Um, And she was talking about, you know, spending uh, hours and hours in a room with Phyllis writing in another room, um, like watching the light change on the wall. And um, I came to Molly's work in part through her memoir, Paradise Piece by Piece, where she describes her decision not to have a child. Um, And so you know, on the one hand, when she was describing these many years of retreats and 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 time that she could give to herself in a way that I don't really have access to right now, and I might never, I don't know, maybe I will. Um, I, uh, I was like enormously envious. But at the same time, I also feel like there, Sheila's book helped me recognize that we're all I don't know how to put it um, that we're all kind of hooking in to the experience of um, being writers and being women and our relationship to time and our relationship to relationships and to self and to uh, experience and we're all in some ways writing about that constellation of uh, priorities and shifting desires and um, and it, it broke down for me the binary uh, or the dichotomy between mother and not mother to think about these like overlapping um, 
kind of Venn diagram. So I don't know, somehow for me, it felt like maybe if we bring Molly into the conversation on some level, it will help us break out of the, um, the threesome that we're in of trying to be like, well, here's two and one, here's two and one, here's two and one, here's two and one, here's three, here's one. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I read uh, Paradise Piece by Piece as well pretty early on in writing this book and uh, was really excited by her her book. And um, she has a different position. She always knew since she was five years old that she didn't want to have a child. Like, it was just so clear to her. And she created a life as deliberately as any of us have um, where that was not going to be where there was just no possibility that that was going to be her future. And that I related to that certainty. I certainly have part of that. There's a piece of that in me as well, but yeah, she's, she, she to me was like a, a, a model of, because the book is called paradise piece by piece. And I, I love that idea in that book where you do make your life piece by piece there there isn't just like you make one decision and there the rest of your life unfolds and here's your life there is you know she really cre- talks about selecting and creating and 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 just how life is a, de- a deliberate act um which to me is very exciting because life so often feels like it's a dream like you're like oh now i'm here now i'm here how did i get here like in the last scene i was in a completely different place mm. so so i yeah And I think Molly would say that a lot of that comes out of, to go back to something you said earlier, Sarah, that I didn't really let you talk about, um, that, that a lot of that certainty for Molly, even though she, she talks about like having to make that decision over and over again. Um, but a lot of that comes out of her, um, consideration of class and race, um, particularly class, um, for her, but I don't know, um, do you want to do you want to go oh, back? Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up Molly's book. I also read it um, uh, went before I was a mother and I loved it. And I identified so strongly with her. And, you know, her, her argument is a practical argument. Um, or, or her plan, I guess I should say is a practical one. She didn't have any family money and wanted to be an artist and was a woman. And she correctly perceived that having a child would would just fuck all that up. And that's exactly how I perceived the you know the way that my that I wanted my life to go. And so you know clearly the the the, the issue of of having protected time to work, having enough money to have protected time to work, at least in the first five years before public school becomes possible. Um, you know, for me, it was it was about money. It was like a, a direct relation of, um, you know, hourly babysitter rate versus what I can do in that hour other than mothering. In a way, the entire experience of mothering for me has been about money. Um, but also, and, um, you know, with my apologies for introducing yet another abstraction to the conversation, I think it's important to recognize not just the the choices that we make that get us to whatever next scene we get to, but also the things that we cannot choose, the things that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like you you meet somebody 
who can help you pay the rent or you get sick and you suddenly, you know, paying for that becomes primary or worrying about that becomes primary. And it's, I think it's as important to think about the things that I was able to choose in my life as it is to think about the things about which I had no choice. And, you know, some, some of them were, are, are very easily framed as, as good things. And some are very easily framed as bad things. But, um, I, I think it's more useful to just put them in the category of the things I could not choose. I could not decide to meet Adam when I did. I could not decide to get sick when I did. But those, both of those moments, and they were very much moments, toggle switches that just shifted everything. Those are as important to what happened to me afterward as all of the choices that I made along the way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't say this with, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I don't say this with any kind of resentment. Um, but I think that um, Sheila and I, I'm sorry to go back to the uh, Venn diagrams, don't write very much um, about the things that we have no choice about. And I think that that's one reason why our work um, is more often called self-indulgent than yours is. Is it more often? Yeah, that's interesting. Really? Okay. I think that I think that writing about illness protects you to some extent um, from that charge of, um, you know, uh, navel gazing. Um, like there are there are circumstances that um, critics um, uh, permit one to navel gaze more than others. Um, but I think that this is a really, really important um, question about like, because because you're not just talking about the things that we normally think of as things we can't control, like, or things that are ne- bad or negative or tragic or traumatic. Um and uh, you're talking about like, you know, you, you didn't choose uh, to meet Adam and that uh, kind of, you know, opened a door that you were in another room once, you know, met, you met him. That's a terrible metaphor. Uh, it doesn't even make sense. Um, <laughs> but I think that's really, that's really interesting. I don't know. What do you think about that, Sheila? Like, I, I really don't think I... I think very much in in that way or write very much about that. I don't know. I mean, the thing that sticks in my head is like, well, you didn't choose to meet Adam, but you still chose to be with him. Like that wasn't, you know, you you made the choice to go with a man with whom you would have, who you wanted to have children with, as opposed to say, well, I got to stay away from that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's It seems more complicated than I can currently um, kind of articulate, I think. But I guess, but Rachel, like, to me, like, the idea of, like, writing about the things that just are, like, well, I, I, you know, like, my Jewishness or whatever, I write about that, but it's not a angst or a conflict for me. There's, it's just a fact. There's nothing to think about. There's, there's not as much to think about as, as, as the things you have to choose. I mean, I just think like it's a matter of what do you have, there's, what is there to think about, about the things that are given to you in the same way that there is to think about the things that I'm not being very articulate. I just, 
No, I think if, you I think this is like super profound, actually, like I, I, you know, I've just been having this long conversation, you know, with, uh, with my son about choosing which college to go to. And, and I, I went off on this incredibly abstract tangent with him about, you know, regret and looking back at your life. Do I, you know, do I regret that I that I that I went to Yale that I chose Yale do no and I and I was giving him this whole philosophical treatise about how uh, I don't I don't believe in fate but I do uh, describe my life um, primarily as like well that's what happened well that's what happened that's just a fact you know I you know these are the facts of my life um, and but there's a way in which like I do on the one hand think that everything was my choice to some extent like I res- I find myself really resisting this idea that that Sarah is is bringing up about like well some things are out of my control I don't see my life that way and I'm not sure why I'm so attached to 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 seeing my life that way but I do think that it's that it's possible that both of us describe um well you know those are the facts or that's what happened and that it's related to our privilege um our privilege as healthy people our privilege as white people as people who have always had um you know enough money um uh and i i I'm, i'm interested in in that um yeah, I mean, we this um, it. I've I've sort of felt the tingling of shame more than once in this conversation, just because of how fucking white we all are talking about these things, and it's. Um, you know, I, I mean, I I just. Uh, See, there we go with the shame. I got I yeah, got right on board the so. shame the shame train with you, Sarah. But I mean, when when Sarah said that, you know, oh, my God, this is this is so uh, shameful on some level. We're we're you know, we're so white. And this conversation is so like informed by our whiteness. Do you think that you as a Canadian, is this a particularly hysterical, uh, but necessary uh, Americanness? shame american shame do you feel like what 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 it, what was your what was your feeling when uh sarah said that shayla i mean i i i'm conscious of that too in our conversation like oh we're three white jewish you know women like there there is we do have that cultural similarity um i don't know i i going back to our mothers like i experienced my mother's shame at being like a jewish Hungarian speaking immigrant to Canada like I I don't feel like I I, like that's the closest I have ever you know come to a feeling of in my family like she was ashamed because they wanted to kill her family and killed her family for being Jewish like I don't I think I think lots of cultures have their experiences of 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 privilege but also of of persecution and like I'm not persecuted, but I certainly feel like I come from a line of that, that my family barely survived and and most of my family was killed. So, you know, um, in, in the Holocaust. So I, I don't feel like I'm completely divorced from a culture that has had, you know, it's, it's own traumas. Um, I also think like the race conversation that's happening right now in America is really important to have happen. Like, I think that that's, 
that's one of the most crucial conversations that are happening in American culture and North American culture right now. And, you know, and, and the rise of like, um, you know, fascism around the world concerns me. I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about politically. We haven't had a political conversation in 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 that direct a way. We've, you know, up till this at all, you know, for the last hour and a half. Um, it's been very personal and, you know, yes, the personal is political, but also the political is political. Um, well, I do, I, to bring up a, a quote that Sarah, this was back from the candor um, conversation that Sarah and I had, we were talking about, you know, the problem of focusing on the difference between mothers and uh, not mothers um, is that, you know, there's so many problems with it, it makes other women feel lesser or whatever. Um, but also it, it, you know, it, it divides women, uh, um, when, you know, we so desperately need to uh, reach out to each other and help each other um, thrive and succeed in a, in a world that is not um, still uh, set up to be supportive and receptive of women. But then Sarah says, she wrote, I think what we're talking about here is, is simply a problem of empathy between different categories of women, which is, of course, just a subset of the general problem of empathy between different human beings. Um, so I, I'm not at all saying, oh, uh, it's okay, or I feel good about like just spending this all our time talking about motherhood or, um, you know, right being a writer without recognizing the extent to which we are not talking about um, the ways in which we're talking about white motherhood or white writing or whatever. Um I don't mean whatever, I mean, whiteness and class and and forms of privilege um, that were that and then and now we're like, oh, and then there's the race conversation and the class conversation as if those are different conversations. They're not different conversations. But I also don't entirely agree uh, with the idea that like, we're not having a political conversation. We are having a political conversation. Um when and I and I do think that we are talking about empathy. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, we also probably are pretty tone deaf in certain ways. I, I should confess that um, I've been checking my email like a crazy person as I always <laughs> do. And I just got uh, like 17 emails because the house just passed the health care bill. And it's kind of all for the last like four and a half minutes it's all I could think about and I'm it's um it's I feel like the gears in my my um my my like my intelligence my intelligence are have just ground to a stop Mm. with panic and rage um but yeah yeah okay so I've acknowledged that and um and I can I can I can move on from that in the moment I can I can deal with that later this is the problem with Skype. This is one of the problems with Skype is that I, I, I couldn't see that's what you were doing. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm just here like petting my cat, picking my nose, checking email. It's just it's <laughs> madness over here. Well, okay. You know, Sarah, you said that you're work, you are working on this book about um, race and class and Boston. Um, you want to say more about uh, about that? You know, I would, but just about every time I've tried to talk about this book, I've just wound up deriving into a snowbank and 
and just sort of looking around bleary eyed thinking, huh, that's, that's not what I said last time about the book. Wow. And now I don't know how to get out of the snowbank. Um, it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it's about, it's about these things that I am as yet unable to articulate, but, um, it's very much about growing up in Boston, which is a very white place. At least the Boston of my experience was a very white place, very, very racist place and a very old place in comparison to the rest of North America, at least in terms of its, um, duration of white settlement. And um, it's also very specifically about my family's whiteness, which um, didn't really exist until the 40s, really. Before the 40s, my, my fan, the parts of my family were Italian, Irish, and Jewish. And in Boston, that's not white. But then it sort of became whitish when my parents were children. And then by the time I was born, I was born white. So... Um, my, you know, for me, the state of being white was a state of, um, at turns, absorbing and resisting my parents, really my mother's fear that if I associated with anything, any person or institution or thing that wasn't white enough, we would lose our whiteness. Mm. And that fear I now see really was the driving force of her adult life, at least of her life as a mother, which is the only life of hers I ever knew. And this was, you know, this worry was, of course, inextricably linked with um, the, you know, the fact that they had come from uh, like a lower, the lower end of middle class. um, And that when I got into Harvard, I sort of began this masquerade of not being middle class. You know, I could just kind of hang out and, and, you know, be whiter than I felt or was, and, um, you know, of a higher class than I felt or was. And it's only been in, you know, recent years, you know, 20 years after getting out of Boston that I'm beginning to see what any of this was or you know the the effect that any of this had on me and i um yeah and and i as i said i I cannot see the circumference of this work yet i don't i don't you know it could at at points i said the book was about bigotry at points i said the, the book was about a haunted house this old house that we lived in um i yeah it's about all of these things and um possibly something else entirely mm. I, I can't wait to read it. I mean, um, it's really hard to talk about this stuff. Um, I think um, the person I've heard talk about it um, very courageously and thoughtfully um, is Eula Biss. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Both thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it. Um, so um, I was just thinking about, um, you know, this is a uncomfortable thing to say, but... Um, yeah, I don't feel that I was born white. And I think that my family became white later than yours, Sarah. I mean, certainly, Sheila, you and I experience white privilege all the time. But my understanding of myself as a white person and what that means is pretty recent, which, of course, is one of the marks of privilege. Um, But it's, 
you know, I only saw myself as Jewish, as female, and then as a mother, those were and as a writer. Um, but my whiteness is kind of uh, new to me, which is a which is a crazy thing to say, and a very white thing to say, but also true. Do you do that with your kids like Sarah or Rachel? Do you try to make them see? Do you try to talk to them about their whiteness or their privilege? Do you do you point out these things to them as as part of their education? Oh, I, 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 I'm going to go first because I, I probably have a much shorter answer than you, Rachel, in that I've only been doing this for a short while. Um, my kid is really lucky in that he lives in a community and goes to a school that is incredibly diverse in just about every measurable way. And he sees different kinds of families and just, you know, kids, kids that come from all over. And I don't think, um, you know, I feel sort of blissfully able to just dodge everything and let his primary experience sort of be what it is right now. Um, and then, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's going to a Title I school for kindergarten next year, um, which, Sheila, in the States, that just means that more than half of the students received uh, free or subsidized lunch. And so it's kind of marked for extra federal funding. Mm-hmm. It's also, though, a school that has, you know, just because of the way it's the, the zone was drawn, um, there are also a lot of families that are very comfortable slash wealthy. And there's an incredibly active parent-teacher association that is occupied mainly by these, um, by these, you know, mostly mothers who have the the time and the dedication to kind of make sure everybody's getting, um, you know, these funds are allocated well and everybody is being treated the same. And um, and I, you know, I think I think I'll again just kind of be able to let my son's primary experience of being around a lot of a lot of different kids be the thing that forms him, rather than trying to sort of you know, give him, give him rhetoric to try to, you know, replace any of that. So that's, that's my, my, you know, my answer at the, at the threshold of just starting to deal with this. I mean, I think it, it, this question occupies an overwhelming majority of my conversations with my kids um, and with their thinking about themselves in the world. I mean, so I have three cisgendered male children who are all white. Uh, I, they're able-bodied uh, and probably heterosexual. So they are, to some extent, you know, they have every imaginable uh, socioeconomic privilege that is available, you know, and they're American. Um, they're citizens, they're, you know, they're um, New Yorkers, they're New Yorkers, they have, uh, they are good test takers, they're, um, they've had, they have enormous um, educational privilege, they've gone to public schools and private schools, um, you know, uh, they, uh, they are even more aware of that than I am. Um, and they definitely feel that the world, I mean, especially since the recent election, that the world is a really bad place. 
And I wish that they did not feel that to this extent, um, even though I admire their kind of unflinchingness to these issues. Um, and I think that they really are struggling. Um, you know, I'm not asking for sympathy, nor would they, but I think that they are struggling with their privilege, with their whiteness, with trying to figure out how to be who they are in the world and how to be good men, um, how to be good people when the, the sort of identity that they occupy are, are primarily seen by them as like the most harmful, oppressive, awful identities. And they are, are really, really aware of the harm um, that straight white men have done, you know, to this planet and, and are doing. And so it's a really interesting um, sort of place to be as a mother. You know, I'm so lucky. I don't think very much about their physical safety. Um, I don't worry, I mean, in terms of them getting shot by the police or, um, you know, being arrested or, um, you know, women don't walk away from them on the street. Um, I don't think, you know, they're like big, but not that big. Um, and, um, but, you know, how to raise like feminist men who are aware of all of these issues, but don't develop a, a kind of like paralyzing self-loathing um, is, is complicated. Yeah. You know. I think Heidi Julevitz is writing a book about this right now called How to Raise a Rapist. Mm -hmm. At oh, least I can't that's, wait to read that. That's the, title, the working title. I don't know if they're going to let her call the book that, but that, and that's, you know, she's got a son and a daughter and, and she teaches at Columbia and, and, you know, where all this sexual um, harassment stuff is going on. And, you know, like, rape culture conversation and and I think the book is like how as a feminist mother um do you raise a son and where what what are these boys being taught that allow them to do these things and I mean, I've only read the first chapter so I don't want to speak for her book but that title is so good yeah see that's so fascinating because you know the the some of the subways in New York there's like an inside seat and an outside seat and my son said that he won't sit on the outside of those two seaters if there's a woman on the inside because he doesn't want to make her feel uncomfortable well you know, and and there's a part of me, uh, and de definitely my husband, um, who you know, of course, we don't want to raise a rapist. Uh, I mean, you know, oh my God, far from it. But I don't want to pathologize um, masculinity entirely, and and um, I still believe that it's possible to be, you know, a good individual white person and acknowledge you know your the the many many ways in which your privilege um and your position is harming others um individually and institutionally but like i i, I also uh don't want them to think of themselves as monsters there were there were two little questions and maybe you you guys can pick which one you want to talk about but um I, I sort of had this idea of wanting to talk about the forms of motherhood um in part because 
um, I was going to talk to you, Sarah, about this. And I was I had a whole idea that, um, you know, that there are certain kinds of forms that one develops or invents um, that are that is that are related to the experience of motherhood. And I was thinking about how your work has changed. And then I was all set up to ask that question. And I have a whole like, you know, construction of of ideas around a poetics of motherhood and all this stuff. And then when I read Sheila's manuscript, I was like, well, this is totally what I consider to be a form of motherhood writing or a poetics of motherhood. So I'm certainly not saying that one has to uh, be a mother to um, create what I'm calling you know, a, a, a for a genre, not genre, I don't even know what word to use. Um, but to kind of like complicate, subvert, undermine the novel, the memoir, the poem, the collection of poems, the, um, the fragment, the aphorism, the, um, you know, the serious book, um, the slight book, the, uh, you know, all of that, that there feels to me to be, uh, a tremendous amount of like um, creative energy um, that I mostly see from um, women writers and 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 often women writers who have children, but obviously not always because I feel like that's what Sheila is doing. Um, so I don't know if you had any thoughts about about that. Huh. Well, right now I'm reading uh, this French writer Jules Renard who, I don't know if you guys know him, but I, I, I was just, it was just suggested to me by somebody that I read his journal, which is wonderful. And I'm also reading um, his first novel, which is called, well, it's called Carrot Top, essentially. Um, and it's, I guess you would call it a sort of autobiographical non-novel, but it has this playfulness to it and this, willingness not willingness but this almost this joyful this exuberant refusal to occupy set forms like of mm. the novel of you know i mean the journal is just it's, it's madness it's just you know one sentence and then like you know the next day one more sentence um and i think <clears throat> and it, it's lovely and yet you know he's very much uh, a man writing this and um you know, I was asked a question by uh, somebody else in some interview recently. Um, you know, I, I, I was asked to either agree or disagree with this point that um, the idea of a woman writer is, or of a woman poet is Emily Dickinson, and, you know, women write short poems, and men write these long, 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 you know, I don't know, I think Whitman might have been the, the other pole of that, and, you know, and the interviewer basically said, like, you know, so do you agree? And I was like, absolutely fucking not, that's ridiculous, like, Basho, okay, mm. and like, and Rachel, I think I, you know, in my like list of like ninety women who write long poems, you were in, you were in the list, um, and so yeah, forms of motherhood. Uh, I mean, the uh, what's the phrase? The many gendered the the many gendered mothers of my heart. Mm. Um, this is this is somebody who Maggie Nelson quotes in the Argonauts, but um, I, I don't I don't know the original source, but. If we're talking about motherhood as this way of like, 
you know, subverting or, or um, expanding an idea of what a form is in writing, then like Jules Renard occupies that category as much as we do or as much as Sheila does. Um, I don't know. It, it makes me a little uneasy. I, I, I feel like I must not be quite understanding the question. Mm-hmm. No, I think you are, but you're you're being help helpfully resisting it. The essentialism of my question. <laughs> oh, I have a really direct good. answer. I I just like looked it up. I want to like quote her. Do you guys know the playwright Sarah Rule? Oh, yeah. I love her. Yes. So she has a book called "A Hundred Essays." I don't have time to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this there's this paragraph like on page four. And she's writing, and then she says, you know, um, but I digress. I could lie to you and say that I intended to write something totalizing, something grand, but I confess that I had a more humble ambition to preserve for myself in rare private moments some liberty of thought. Perhaps that is equally seven. My son just typed seven on my computer. And I love that, like, she's got the sentence. Perhaps that is equally, and we don't know what the end of it's going to be because her son goes and pushes Mm. the seven key and then this it's a completely new sentence because this child has come and like put his hands on the keyboard instead of like getting angry at him and like erasing it and trying to like sustain the thought and show like oh look I'm a writer with all this time to sustain all these thoughts and you know this floating mind that doesn't exist in a on on the physical plane like she leaves it in there and makes it part of the work Mm -hmm. so to I thought that was like one of the most exciting things that I'd I'd read that was like a form that that seems directly linked to the experience of motherhood and and its interruptions and I don't know I love that. I mean the thank you Sheila. I mean that's uh that rescues me a tiny bit because that is the kind of thing I'm talking about uh when I imagine mm-hmm. a poetics of motherhood it's the kind of like interruptedness, inclusivity um you know, uh, it's funny, like, it's just so funny. Mm -hmm. But, but I guess, I guess, I mean, I guess this brings us back to like, you know, the conversation we had so long ago, Sarah, like there, maybe that was the maybe the forms that I've inhabited or explored came to me through my experience of being a mother, and I can't imagine coming to them in any other way. That doesn't mean they are the forms of motherhood or a poetics of motherhood, because maybe someone else, um, uh, you know, to some extent, we're all mothers in the sense that we've become so interruptible with our stupid devices all the time. um, And so distracted, it's like a form of motherhood. Um, But, you know, other people have um, major life experiences, whether they are uh, illness or, um, you know, tragedy or a great love affair or addiction or a fetish that are that 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 um, help them or force them to um, create new forms um, to express those life experiences. Um, and maybe those forms end up looking like my forms or like different forms. And I don't know. Oh yeah, now I see. I want to. I want to um, strike the Jules Renard monologue and just say there's a certain kind of purity that 
um, I think one can chase as a writer, like a, a purity from, you know, being contaminated by, by parts of life that aren't literary or that, you know, shouldn't be in literature, the, the maternal parts, the female parts, the um, shame-filled parts, and, you know, so you can produce some sort of, you know, canonical work that's unpolluted by any of these non-literary things. But um, it sounds like what you're saying is that the work that's most interesting to you now is work that is so polluted. And I absolutely agree with you. I, I love that Sarah Rule collection. And I love work that's just, you know, I... Am I really going to say polluted again? Um, contaminated by uh, by you know these these non um, you know these things that don't belong in literature. Right. It makes for uh, it makes for really wonderful literature. I want to ask one last question. <laughs> so Sheila said in an interview in the Guardian, uh, someone was asking you Sheila about how should a person be and the character Sheila's kind of relationship to androgyny. And if you think there's a third sex, and then um, Sheila, you Sheila respond, and you, you said, I think there are 17 sexes. I even think having children versus not having children is a different sexuality. Do you think that's true? I mean, I think it's complicated. Like, I think that it was a joke when I said there's 17 sexes. Like, I don't know how many there are, but there's certainly, like, more than, you know, two or whatever. But the thing about having children or not having children, like, the, what, I, what I think is that there's something, I don't know where it comes from, in me that's always, despite my doubts, that's always known that I won't have children, that my body will never do that. My body could not do that. It's just, like... I almost feel like I don't have a uterus, you know, like there's just a part of me that will not have children no matter what. And I feel like that is as deep inside me as like my sexual attraction to men. And, you know, I feel like it's part of my sexuality that I, or it could be called part of my sexuality that I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to procreate, you know, and like procreation has to be tied to sexuality, I would think, you know, on some cellular level. So yeah, I think some women really have to be mothers, like their bodies tell them that their minds tell them that their soul tells them that. And some women, it's the opposite. And like, why, why shouldn't that be a category of our sexuality? And, and the way that Molly Peacock said that she knew that she was, since she was five years old, like I have the same thing, like even when I was a tiny little girl, like I never wanted children. So perhaps that is like on the spectrum of all these different aspects of sexuality. One of the, you know, one of the, uh, I don't know, questions like that your, that your being answers for you before you have any, complex thoughts about it hmm. I love that idea I like it too yeah I think uh yeah I yeah you're, you're you're making me kind of evaluate my sexuality according to this wonderfully capacious model and I think I think there's like there's an openness to different things that has not been consistent in my life w regarding sexuality and, and sexual things 
And, um, you know, even wanting children, like I didn't like want children until my son was like two. <laughs> I, we had him as a hedge against possible future regrets, but I didn't feel that like, ugh, that like physical, um, you know, physiological attachment to him until he was talking really. And, and now I, I feel it fully. But that's, um, you know, that, that maybe that's yet another category, or I don't know, there's this like sliding scale of, of openness that, um, y- you know, it can be gradual. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, boom, I, I made the decision and then I was never the same. Like, well, I'm definitely not the, you know, the same sexuality or the same, the, you know, I didn't have the same um, feeling about you know, wanting to be a mother as I did even during early motherhood. Mm. Well, I think this has been totally fabulous. This was great. And I loved it. And I if I weren't so fucking thirsty, because I live (laughs) in the desert, I would want to continue. (laughs) All right. Talking to you guys. Yes. Well, wonderful. And we'll, we'll continue uh, communication via email, but go drink some water and, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank okay. you so much, Rachel. All right. Bye guys. Hey, guys. Bye. Bye. This has been episode 36 of commonplace conversations with poets and other people. I'm Rachel Zucker. Music by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Zach Tackett. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Thank you to Grey Wolf, Alice James Books, and Farrar Strauss and Giroux for supporting this episode, to all our patrons, and to all our listeners. Take care. <laughs>